Mark chapter 10. As a church, we have been going through selections from the gospel of Mark, and uh, it's been really a fruitful time for us as a church. We're in verses 35 through 45. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up there. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some extra Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love to just give you one. That'd be our gift to you. So you can follow along on the screen. You can follow along if you have an app. You can follow along with your own Bible. We just want you to see the words of God because we believe that in them there is life. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to read straight through this whole passage we're tackling today. I'd like to pray, and I'd like to get right to work unpacking and seeing what it is that God wants to teach us here this evening. So follow along with me, if you would, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to, them, said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that your word, um, though it contains rules and it contains laws and it contains poems, God, I thank you that primarily what your word is is a story of you sending your son to rescue and redeem us. God, we are all, apart from your grace, we're sinful and we're destined for destruction. But God, you're a God who's rich in mercy and full of grace and full of love. And so we want to see that and we want to celebrate that tonight. God, I pray that you would guard my lips. Help me to speak that which is only your truth. God, I pray for all of us, you'd give us soft hearts, teachable hearts, receptive hearts to hear the truth that you want to speak to our hearts. God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to bring to life these words that he inspired to be written. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everybody said, amen. All right, I have uh, some very bad news for you guys this evening. We'll start out with the bad news. We'll spend a great deal of time on this bad news because it's very bad news. You ready for the bad news? You're prideful. And I'm prideful. In fact, we consulted 10 out of 10 spiritual care providers and the verdict was the same. We're all very, very prideful. And that's going to be the major theme of this passage, this story that we're examining tonight is this idea of our pride and Jesus' humility. And so, just by way of kind of proving the diagnosis, I thought it might be good for us to maybe take a few minutes to just do kind of your annual checkup, your annual pride test. This is not something, by the way, that I invented. This is something that's actually fairly common at churches. A lot of preachers will do a pride test. It's kind of like going to the doctor and getting your annual physical. They'll ask you some questions that'll make you feel uncomfortable. At the end, uh, you have something terrible and they have to treat you for it, right? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a pride test. I got 15 questions for you. You can keep score in your head or if you need to take a, a piece of paper out, that's totally okay, but let's read through these questions together. All right, ready? First question. I have compared myself to others either to covet what they have or to boast about what I have. All right, we tracking so far? Question two, I have minimized my own sins or shortcomings. Number three, I have maximized the sins or shortcomings of others. Number four, I have had thoughts like, how could God let blank happen to me after all that I have done for him? Number five, I have a hard time being thankful or content. I complain often. Somebody's like, I don't like that question. I don't want to complain about that. But you're doing it right now, okay? Keep tracking. Here we go. Question six, at times I am too focused on my gifts or abilities. Or number seven, at times I'm too focused on my lack of gifts or abilities. Number eight, I have disrespectful thoughts or attitudes toward those in authority. That one's a freebie. That's just called being an American, right? 
Number nine, I often seek independence and control above all else. Number 10, I sometimes care too much about what other people think about me. Number 11, I have been devastated or angered by criticism or feedback. 12, when confronted, I have blame shifted, I have been defensive, or I've been unable to admit wrong. By the way, as we keep going through this, if you can't say amen, you're welcome to say ouch. That's totally okay. 13, I have used sarcasm or jokes as a way to put others down indirectly. 14, I sometimes use attention-getting tactics to feel valuable. Or 15, I have been critical of others without giving thought to the ways in which I am the same. All right. Have you kept a, a running tally as we go through? You ready? Let's do a, a little scorekeeping here, okay? If you scored 10 through 15, you're prideful and you know it, all right? That's like the people who are like, man, I got all 15 of those right. I'm the best at being prideful. I am the most prideful here today. That's good. If you scored a 5 through 10, you are also quite prideful, okay? You may rest assured that you are prideful enough for our discussion. If you scored a 1 through a 5, you're still dangerously prideful, okay? You're not out of the woods yet. And if you scored a 0, you are prideful and self-deceived, and we'll have a special service for you uh, at a later time, okay? The point is this. We're all prideful. At some level or another, we all have an overinflated sense of self-importance, Something that happened at the very beginning of the fall of man. Indeed, the Bible would say that each and every person who is born is born with a sinful nature because of what our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose in the garden. They looked at the choice that God gave them. God gave them very clearly a choice. You may eat all of the fruit of all of the trees in the garden except for this one. And in that place and in that time, our first parents listened to the voice of the deceiver, listened to the serpent and said, you know what? Maybe God's actually holding out on us or maybe we know something better than God. And ever since that choice, every single human being has been born with a propensity towards pridefulness. Being self-consumed, being self-absorbed, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And this is not just my opinion. This is something that Christian authors and pastors and theologians throughout the centuries have noticed. That pride is indeed underneath all of the other sins. Pride is what leads to all of the other vices that we struggle with. I'll give you just a couple of examples. The author C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. When he mentions that about through pride is when the devil became the devil, there's a verse in Isaiah that we believe speaks about the mindset of Satan. He says that I will ascend to the heavens, I will be like God. We'll explore that more in a minute. Here's another quote from the the great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He puts it this way. I say, there is nothing more eloquently condemned in Scripture than pride, and yet there is no trap into which we poor silly birds so easily flee, no pitfall into which, like foolish beasts of the earth, we so continually run. Pride is a pervasive problem. It's a serious problem. It is the underlying sin underneath so much of what other sins we fall into. It is the sin that made the devil be the devil. In fact, it is uniquely singled out in the scriptures as one of the sins that God says that he hates. God doesn't use that word in his word, in his scriptures, about just everything. He says, I specifically hate pride. Pride is, as C.S. Lewis put it, the complete anti-God state of mind. So before we unpack this particular passage we're looking at, I want to just take a few minutes and kind of give you a little bit of a, just an overview about what the Bible says about pride, in particular, how it affects our relationship with God, how it affects our relationship with others, and even how it affects our relationship with ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves. So let me go through just a, a list of verses, a list of passages that speak to this. First of all, pride in God. Pride is the lowering of God. This is the verse I mentioned in Isaiah 14. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's a pride mindset. I'll be like God. But here's the problem. 
We're not God. We cannot ascend to his height. God is above everything. And so when we have a prideful mindset, we don't really elevate ourselves. In fact, in our minds, we bring God down. We lower him. Pride is an ignoring of God's law. There's a verse in Judges. I was just recently finishing up a read-through of the book of Judges. And this is the last verse in Judges. And it's actually a refrain you see multiple times in that book. It says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I will define what's right. I will define what's wrong. That is a prideful mindset. It ignores God's law. Who cares what God says about X? Who cares what God says about Y? Who cares what God says about this or that thing? I will define what right and wrong is. How many of you know that our culture, in our day, we do the exact same thing? We do the exact same thing. We want our definition of morality, our definition of right and wrong, our preferences, our personal opinions to trump that of the word of God. We do the exact same thing. Pride is ignoring of God's guidance or his providence. There's a, a passage in James chapter four, verses 13 through 16, where James is speaking kind of hypothetically to someone. He says, now you guys say, oh, we're gonna go to such and such a town. We're gonna spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow is gonna bring. He says, your boasting is evil. You're just assuming that you're in charge of your destiny. You're the master of your own fate. What James says is, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a town and do this or that. I don't care what the Disney Channel says, you can't just be anything or do everything, right? Don't believe in Disney Channel theology, all right? Because not all of you are gonna be astronauts, all right? We need to have a humility that says, okay, God, I wanna allow you to guide me and allow you to direct me. And ultimately, Psalm 10 would say that pride is an ignoring of God himself. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 10, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. So according to the Bible, atheism would be a pretty ultimate display of pride. I know better than God. I know all things in the universe and I can definitively declare there is no God. That's prideful. Let's see how pride affects our relationship with others. It focuses us on others' flaws. We're hyper-focused on the failures and shortcomings of others. There's a, a parable in Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable. It's a story about two men who go to the temple to pray. One of them is a tax, I'm sorry, one of them is a Pharisee, a religious leader. He's supposed to be a good guy. And the other one is a tax collector, somebody who everyone would assume is just a bum and a no good guy. And Jesus in this story that he's telling, this parable says that the, the Pharisee goes to pray. And this is what the Pharisee's prayer sounds like. He, he prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Oh God, I'm so thank you. I'm so thankful I'm not like this evil, wicked person. Focus on the flaws of others. Now, listen, before you jump too harshly on that Pharisee who's praying that way, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but have you ever sat through a sermon, maybe one I've preached or somebody else, and you think, wow, this is really good, hard-hitting stuff. I really wish so-and-so was here to hear it because they have all those problems, right? We do this. We're prideful. We focus on the flaws of others and it drives a wedge in a relationship between us and them. It makes us be impatient with others. Another parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 is the one of the unmerciful servant where a servant owes a king a great sum of money, billions of dollars. And the king is demanding payment. And he says, just be patient with me. I'll pay it back eventually, I promise. And the king forgives the debt. It says that that servant walks out, finds another servant who owes him, you know, the equivalent of $20 and begins to choke him saying, pay up. It's impatience. We want people to be patient with us when we're struggling or stumbling or still figuring things out, but we demand people to be at a more mature place than we ourselves are. And lastly, Proverbs 9 will say that pride is, is a, an unteachable heart. Listen to what the, the Proverbs say. Proverbs 9, verse 8. Do not reprove or correct a scoffer or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Do you guys know what a, a scoffer is when you see that word in the Bible? What's a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who does this. 
Right? Like that's the technical definition. If you look it up in a, in a Hebrew dictionary, that's a scoffer, right? It's someone who goes like, yeah, I know better. Yeah, I'm smarter than that. I know, I, I know what they're saying, but I, I, I don't need them. They can't teach me anything. I have the internet. I, I know things, right? I watched that documentary. I know some stuff, right? That's the heart of a scoffer. It's an unteachable heart. It's a heart that says, I know things and you can't teach me anything. And lastly, pride even distorts our relationship with self. We don't see our own flaws. In Revelation 3, there's a verse where Jesus is speaking to one of the churches of Revelation, one of the seven churches. He says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need for nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their, their, their self-perception was just completely off. They thought they had it all together. And yet Jesus' assessment was that spiritually they are impoverished. And if I could be so bold as to say, I think that that is the spiritual condition of a lot of people on the north side of Seattle. By and large, it's a comfortable area to live in. People have a two-car garage. People have a nice yard. People have a good job, maybe a savings account. And I think that many of us, it'd be easy to say, yeah, I've got things together. Life's going pretty good. But if people really saw the true spiritual condition of their heart, would it match up with what Jesus says? Naked, poor, pitiable, wretched, blind? Pride helps us think too highly of ourselves. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Listen. This verse could actually be almost as easily used as not thinking too lowly of yourself. Have a sober judgment. Do you actually know who you are? Do you know what your strengths are? Do you know your weaknesses? Do you have an honest view of yourself? In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, we don't know our neediness. Pride makes it so we, we don't know our neediness. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you didn't receive as a gift? Well, you don't understand, Aaron, I, I work hard. I go to work every day. I, I get up early. I go work hard, and I, I have a job, and I, I make sure that I take care of mine. Right, but where did you get that breath in your lungs? How is it you woke up today? Where did you get that, the gift of life? All we have is a gift from God. I want to say one other thing about pride. There's a type of pride. We get kind of sophisticated with pride sometimes. We know that we're not supposed to, you know, puff up our chest and strut around like a, a peacock. And so we, we try to downplay our pride a little bit, and it finds other more subtle ways of, of sneaking out, okay? And one of the most common ways that that happens is through something I'll call false humility. Oh, no, 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 I'm just terrible. I'm no good. I couldn't possibly. Nobody thinks anything of me. I'm, I'm just wretched. I'm terrible. I'm not prideful. I'm just the worst. I really am the worst. In fact, I'm probably the best at being worst. And have you looked at me lately? Me. And by the way, me, I'm really bad. I'm really awful. I'm me, right? It's actually a really sideways version of hyper self-focus. False humility is still consumed with self. False humility does the same exact thing that regular old pride does, it puts God too low. Oh, I'm just so awful. God could never save me. God could never love me. Despite the fact that his word says that all who are saved in Christ Jesus are forgiven and washed clean of their sins, well, I just can't forgive myself. Really? Sounds humble, but do you see how it's really prideful? God, you couldn't possibly forgive me. Wow, that's pretty audacious. It puts others too low. They're all terrible. They're all jerks. They couldn't love me. They couldn't want me. They've all done things wrong to hurt me. It puts self too high. puts yourself at the focus. I am uniquely unlovable. I am uniquely awful. I'm uniquely unsavable. Another thing that false humility does is it denies human value and dignity as, as we are uniquely created in the image and the likeness of God. Did you know that in the Bible, in the first chapters of Genesis, when God creates, says he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke. Let there be light, let there be animals, let there be plants, let there be, let there be. When it came time to create humans, do you know what he did? It says he fashioned them out of the dust of the earth. He got involved, he got his hands dirty. It says into the man, he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. It says when he created the woman, he took the rib out of the, the side of the man and 
fashioned the woman for the man and the, the two were uniquely, specially made for one another. God didn't just say, let there be people. He got his hands dirty. He got involved. Psalm 8 would say that we are created just a little lower than the angels. And one of the great lies of our culture is that as human beings, we're basically just animals. So it's okay if you act like an animal. No, it's not. You are an image bearer of God. You are uniquely positioned between God and all of other creation to be one of his stewards of this earth and this, this creation he's given to us. False humility is a type of pride that says, nah, I just deny what God says about me. Also interesting, false humility has the same effect of driving a wedge in between relationships with other. It removes one from fellowship with Christ's body. I was, I was thinking through this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with 1 Corinthians 12. If you've read through the Bible or been around church very much, you've heard the church, the people of God, described as a body with many parts. You guys remember that analogy? You have the eyes, you have the hand and the foot. And I always think of that passage, just kind of in my mind, I think of that passage as, well, the eye can't look down on the hand and say, ha, you're a hand, we don't have any need of you, or the hand can't look down on the foot and say, well, you're just a foot, we have no need of you. But I didn't even realize this until I got into my study this week, that the first verses, these verses 14 through 16, actually speak of the opposite direction. You actually have an example here of this sort of false humility. Listen to what it says here. The body does not consist of one member but many. And if the foot should say, the foot, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. It's a very interesting illustration of this kind of jealousy, upward looking, well, I guess I'm just not as good as the eye, so I'm not really a part of the body. That's false humility. Let me say this by way of a caveat. Sometimes we use the word pride in our culture to mean something that we enjoy or something that we are proud of in the sense that we appreciate it or we think it's valuable. Sometimes we can say this about our kids, right? I appreciate my kids. I am proud of my kids. I'm really thankful. They're, one of my daughters is learning to play piano, and one of my other daughters is learning to tap dance, apparently, in the hardwood floors above me. Like they, I'm proud of my kids for the things that they learn and the things that they're accomplishing. And I can say that, that we use that word that way, but there's a difference between that type of pride and what the Bible calls pride, the sin of pride. And actually, watch this. Watch how easily it can go there in my heart. I'm so thankful for my kids. I'm so proud of them and the accomplishments that they are doing. And actually, they're better than most of the other kids. And they came from me, so therefore I must be pretty awesome because you see how quickly it goes from genuinely valuing or what the Bible would call esteeming something, thinking of it as value and giving credit to them, but honestly giving the, the, the praise and the glory to God versus self-focused pride where I'm just taking credit for something that's rightfully God's. Pride is a big deal, right? This is a big problem. But thankfully, we have a big Savior and a big gospel. So let's go to this passage now. We've kind of set all of that up by way of introduction. Let's pick back up in verse 35. Now, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, came to Jesus, and said to him, James and John are two of Jesus' disciples. They're two of the first disciples that he called. You can go back earlier in the Gospel of Mark and see where he chose them. You know what's interesting? In, in Mark's telling, it says James and John went to Jesus. In Matthew's version, it says that they got their mother to do it for them. Did you know that? Hey, we have this crazy request we want to ask of Jesus. Mom, will you go ask? He'll be nicer to you. He'll probably yell at us for this, this request. So they got their mom to do it. And on the one hand, okay, that's very sweet. The mom's going to make this request. On the other hand, it's like, time to cut the apron strings, boys, right? Teacher, this is what they say. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Any of you uh, parents of children ever heard that one before? Dad, I'm about to ask you something and you have to say yes. Oh, this is a recipe for disaster. That's kind of what they're doing here. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, this is an audacious request. This is two of the disciples saying, hey, I know there were, how many, how many disciples were there? Twelve. There's two of them saying, hey, we are going to go get the prize spots of honor next to Jesus. I'll read to you from one Bible commentary, the way that they describe this. In biblical times, 
Although the right hand was often considered more honorable than the left, yet a position on either hand near the king was considered a post of great honor. The Jewish historian Josephus represents Saul at supper with Jonathan, his son, on his right hand, and Abner, the captain of his host, on his left. In the Sanhedrin, that's the, the Jewish ruling council, the vice president sat on the right hand of the president, and the referee, who was the officer next in rank, sat on the left. Their mindset is this. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he is going to be the king. He is the Messiah. We know that this is true. He is going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to kick out all of those filthy, awful Romans who have taken over our land. He's going to restore the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. And when he becomes king, we want to be right there at the party. We want to be seated at the head table. We want the place of prominence. We want the place of position. Now again, do you identify with them? Do you and I ever want to be invited to the big boy table, as it were? You ever been invited to a, a dinner or an event where there was somebody important there, somebody famous? You ever bragged to somebody else about having the cell phone number of somebody important? Posted up a selfie with a celebrity? I don't know. We do this, right? We're not that dissimilar. We do this. It's an audacious request. But it's not just an audacious request. It's also an ignorant request. This is what Jesus says to them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, what do they say? We are able. Absolutely, Jesus. Whatever you say, we're up for it. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. All right, there's a lot going on in this passage. Let me explain a few things. First of all, this idea of the cup or the baptism. In their minds, they are thinking about the coronation ceremony of the king. If you got to sit next to the king and drink from his cup, oh my goodness, that is the place of honor. Or the baptism, that could be a, a reference to kind of the ceremony, the, the washing ceremony, or something that we, when they would put, into a, uh, put a new king into place, there would be a ceremony. And this baptism, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking in earthly terms. But Jesus is not thinking in those earthly terms. When he says, the cup that I am to drink, what Jesus is thinking of is the cup that he will one day drink. Just a few chapters later, we'll see it. It's the cup of God's wrath the cup of the wrath of God that's poured out on sinners. Jesus takes that cup himself and drinks it to the dregs so that all those who are in Christ, there's no more wrath left for you. Did you know, if you were a Christian, did you know that there is no wrath for you at all? Sometimes pastors, preachers like myself, we talk about God's wrath because it's one of his attributes. But if you're a Christian, there is no wrath for you. It was taken all by Jesus on the cross. Or this baptism. Again, maybe they're thinking of a, a ceremony, but the baptism that Jesus is speaking of is the waves, the breakers of God's wrath, again, crashing over him on the cross. That we deserve a judgment, a, a, a drowning, if it, as it were. But Jesus is taking that upon himself. So they're thinking in natural terms. Jesus is thinking in eternal terms. No, you can't drink from this cup. You can't be baptized like I can. And they're audacious enough to ask in the first place and they're ignorant enough to think, oh, totally, absolutely we can, Jesus. We can totally drink that cup and go into that baptism with you. What's interesting then is, is he says, well, actually, you will. Jesus said to them, this is verse uh, 39, the cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's predicting the way that they're going to die. The scripture tells us some, early church history tells us all of the rest, but all of the disciples, except for one, faced a martyr's death. James and John, the two guys here in question, James, we see in the pages of scripture in Acts that James was killed with a sword at the hand of Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, because he was tired of them preaching about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who rose from the dead. 
So James did indeed face a martyr's death. He did taste of the cup. He did taste of the baptism. What Jesus experienced in full, he tasted of in part. And John, his brother, later would become the the oldest surviving apostle. He would write the book of Revelation while exiled on an island in Patmos. While John did not, as far as we can tell, suffer a martyr's death, he surely did live a martyr's life. Early church history tells us that before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, John was boiled alive in oil. And it was a a full body scarification before he was then sent off to the island of Patmos to live out the remainder of his days. You know, it's interesting because you and I, as Christians, we're guaranteed a few things. And one of them is we are guaranteed that if we desire to follow Jesus and live a godly life, we will face struggles and trials and persecutions. Amen? I don't care what the prosperity pimps on TV say. You following Jesus is not always going to lead to a healthy, happy, sunshine, roses, lollipops, and puppy dogs life. There are times where we will face deep suffering for our faith. We have members of this church who have family members in the Middle East who face legitimate persecution on a daily or weekly basis. I prayed with one woman about a month and a half ago. She was asking for prayer because their family back in in their country in the Middle East, the family pastor had a knock on his front door and there was a man standing outside the front door, grabbed the pastor, dragged him out of the street, beat him, said, you need to stop preaching about Jesus and kidnapped him and took him away for three days. They didn't know where he was. By God's grace, people were praying. He was returned. You know what he did? He went back to preaching about Jesus. I love to, by the way, side note, I love to find some ways for us as a church to support that pastor because that's pretty cool. Go right back to preaching Jesus. It's been said, I don't remember where the quote originates from, but it's been said that in other parts of the country, Christians fear the raised fist. And in the United States of America, Christians fear the raised eyebrow. You believe what? I need you to understand that following Jesus, what, what Jesus tasted in full, we will taste in part. We will experience hardship. We will experience suffering if you really want to follow Jesus. One other thing that's really fascinating to me is even in this moment, Jesus is modeling humility. Even in this moment. Look what it says in verse 40. It says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Matthew's version says, for whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus, in this moment, is submitting to the will of the Father. He's saying that I don't have exclusive decision-making rights. I and my Father are in relationship together. Listen, the Christian teaching is that God is one God, one substance, one essence in three persons or three personalities, if you want to use that term, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are fully, totally, completely, and equally God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are not 33.33333% God each. They're each fully God. Jesus is every bit as much God as the Father is. The Holy Spirit is every bit as much God as the, the Father and the Son are. Is it confusing to our minds? Yes, it is a mystery. It is a paradox. It's not something we can fully comprehend. God is beyond our understanding. But here we see that even though the members of the Godhead are fully equal, Jesus says, no, I'm gonna leave that to the decision of my Father. Did you know that humility and submission is part of the character of God himself? That Jesus is modeling humility. I will submit to my Father's will. He says that who's going to sit at my right hand and who's going to sit at my left hand at my coronation ceremony when I become king? That's not my decision. God's, God's got some people prepared for that. And if you read a few chapters ahead, you will see indeed at the coronation ceremony of King Jesus, there is indeed one on his right and one on his left, and it's two thieves. And King Jesus is hanging on a cross with a sign mocking him, King of the Jews. And the world didn't realize at that moment Jesus was truly the king. I just love that Jesus is practicing humility right there in this moment. Continuing on into uh, verse 41. When the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples, they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That kind of seems like a, an obvious situation to happen, right? Wait a minute, hold on. There are 12 of us. What did you guys do? 
You guys, did, what, you, you guys had your mom do what? What did you ask Jesus? You two think of all the 12 of us, you're the two special ones that are going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand? What about Bartholomew? Nobody ever talks about poor Bartholomew. He doesn't even get but just a mention here in their scripture. Or what about poor Thomas, okay? He has one bad day and poor Thomas's reputation is ruined for the rest of his life, right? Doubting Thomas. I actually think poor Thomas, I, I think that Thomas is tougher than we give him credit for. Did you know in the, in the Gospels there's a story about when before Jesus had died and resurrected and Thomas had a little bit of a hard time believing that. There was a moment where Jesus said, we need to go to this other city and the disciples tried to stop him because they said they, they, the authorities are out to kill you, Jesus. And she's like, we got to go. And Thomas is the only one who speaks up and says, you know what? If we die, we die. Let's go to Jesus and just let's go with him and get it over with. It's like, what about tough guy Thomas, right? That sounds better than doubting Thomas. There's 12 disciples. Why should James and John think that they are so special to get the honored seats? I can imagine this drove a rift. Again, we see that pride separates relationship not just with God, but with one another. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus sit them down and lecture them and give them a stern rebuke? You idiots, how could you think so highly of yourself? No. Jesus uses this moment to lovingly and compassionately call his disciples to himself and give them a leadership lesson. Listen to what he says. He called them to him and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. Think about this. We live in a culture that, like this culture, like every human culture, we compete for prominence and preeminence. I actually have an interesting quote. One of the books I was reading recently has a quote from a, a Roman nobleman who lived during this time, and, and there's a saying, and I, and I intentionally left a word blank. Let me read you this saying. This is what Cicero, a Roman nobleman and author, writes. He says, By nature... We yearn and hunger for fill in the blank. And once we have glimpsed some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. So in our culture, how would we fill in the blank? By nature, we yearn and hunger for, I don't know, love, right? Maybe the Beatles were telling the truth. All you need is love, fill in the blank, love. Maybe some of the more pragmatic among us would fill it in with money. By nature, we yearn and hunger for money. And once we've glimpsed some part of its radiance, there's nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. Do you know what the original word is in that quote that I left blank? It's honor. It's honor. By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. The whole culture of the day was based on honor. And the greatest thing you could face was not poverty. The, the worst thing, I should say, the worst thing you could face was not poverty, but shame. Even identity theft back then didn't have to do with money, it had to do with honor. In our day, people steal each other's identities so they can take their money. In their day, people would steal their other people's identities so they could get to places of honor and go dine with kings and act like they were fancier than they were. That's the whole culture. It was an honor-based culture. I have to be ahead of you. I have to be on a higher rung of the ladder than you. I might be underneath these other people, but at least I am above you. And going back to the text, Jesus said, this is how the Gentiles do it, the pagans, those people who don't know God. They, they lord it over them. I just need you to know that I'm above you. I think you guys tell me what you think about this. I think that, again, sometimes we get sophisticated with this. We still do that. We know, I'm not supposed to say, like, well, I'm better than you. So we do things like when someone tells a story, the second person comes in and tells a story that's a little bit better. Oh, yeah, well, I did. One-upsmanship. I'm just a little bit better than you. Oh, yeah, 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 I've done that too, right? We get sophisticated with our pride. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. My, my people are going to operate differently. My kingdom is going to operate differently. Sound City, this has implications for us as a church. How do your leaders act towards you? Do myself or the other pastors, is there lording it over? In the community groups of the leaders, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say because I'm above you. Or is it going to be different in God's church? Is it going to be different among God's people? Are we going to go with a godly definition of what greatness looks like? It shall not be so among you. Why? Because even with Jesus, it's different. Jesus himself is different. 
It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to read that verse again. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's a better gospel summary in the entire Bible than Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, Jesus, God himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there was ever a person who had the right to stand up and say, listen, I'm actually above you. You should, you should follow me because I'm better than you. It would be Jesus. He could do that, right? Oh, yeah, you guys want to talk about this or that? Yeah, I created the world. Did you do that? See those stars and the sun and the moon? Yeah, I spoke those into existence. Jesus could have pulled that card, but what did Jesus do? Jesus came to serve. Jesus got down on his hands and knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus, when the crowds would press around him and harass him, he would stop and teach them because he had compassion on them. When they were hungry out in the wilderness, he made food appear from heaven. He miraculously provided provision for them. Jesus came not to just be served, but to serve, to show us a demonstration of what he lived like. Think about this. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even in his death, Jesus didn't, didn't say, well, once you realize how truly rotten you are and we'll all come groveling to me, then I'll go to the cross and die for you. No, the Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were still in an antagonistic relationship with God, Jesus went to the cross for us. That is amazing. That is unlike any other king. You find me any other world leader, any other politician, any other religious leader who put others first like that. There's not one. Jesus is unlike anyone else who has ever lived. Isn't that an amazing example? But let me tell you what, there's, there's even one more thing that's of the most importance for you to hear. I can't just put Jesus before you as a good example. Why? Because in actuality, that's kind of depressing. Do you see how humble Jesus was? Go, try to be as humble as him. <laughs> I don't know about you, but to me, that's actually kind of discouraging. Wow, Jesus is so humble. I could never be that humble. Honestly, if any of you had the reaction, like, well, actually, yeah, I think I could. I'm gonna go try to be as humble as Jesus. You've already failed. Like, go back to square one, right? You can't. Here's the thing about Jesus' humility. It wasn't just a good example. It actually accomplished something for us. Jesus' humility is what led him to the cross. He suffered as a slave. Crucifixion was something that slaves were, were succumbed to. You wouldn't crucify a Roman citizen. It was too shameful. You would crucify slaves or people that you really wanted to make a public spectacle of. Jesus went to the cross as a slave. Jesus died in our place for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again conquering over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus' death was, the Bible says, was a ransom. It was a payment. Do you know that our sin accrues a debt before God? That's the way the Bible speaks often, like a financial metaphor, that before God we have an unpayable debt, and Jesus' death was our full payment, payment paid in full. And his resurrection proves that that payment was accepted. You want to know what's really remarkable? The Bible talks a lot about Pride leading to a fall or pride leading to destruction, that the prideful end up being destroyed. You guys know some of those verses if you're familiar with the, the book of Proverbs especially? If you're prideful, you get destroyed. Jesus was the most humble man who ever lived and yet he was destroyed like the prideful so that prideful people like you and I could be given the joy of his humility. Jesus traded places with us. The most humble man who ever lived went through the punishment of the prideful so that we who are prideful could receive the blessings of the humble. That is remarkable. That's our God. It's not just that Jesus was a good example for us. No, if I just left you with that, that's pastoral malpractice. 
Jesus' humility actually accomplished something for us. He bought our freedom. He bought our pardon. He bought our forgiveness. If you are a Christian, God looks at you as though you were as humble as Jesus himself. Yeah, but wait a minute, Pastor Aaron. I did that pride test. I failed. I got 14 out of 15, and I was not paying attention during one of them. I know. That may be true. We still wrestle against pride, but those who are in Christ Jesus have been dressed in his robes of righteousness, and when God looks at us, he treats us as though we had the humility of Christ. All the while, while he is himself humbly and patiently working on us to transform us day by day so that we do, in fact, look more like Jesus. Listen, you will never become more humble by just trying harder to be humble. The way you will actually grow in humility is by reflecting on how crazy it is that the king of the universe humbled himself and took a death that we deserved. Isn't that amazing? That's some good news. I hope you needed some good news tonight. Because the, the, the diagnosis was bad. You're prideful. You're really prideful. This section in particular, really prideful, right? But our Savior's so humble. We are saved by humility, not ours, but Jesus. I want to give you in conclusion just maybe seven tools or seven uh, weapons in your, in your arsenal in the war against pride. I mean these to just be helpful for you, just seven different things. There's probably 50 things we could have done because pride is such a big problem. But I just want to give you seven for you this week in your personal life to think about, to pray about, to talk with others about ways that you can wage war on pride in your own life. Number one is this, cultivate a right view of God's greatness. It's been said that nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, walks up to the edge and says, I am amazing, right? That's not your reaction to the Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon and think, wow, I am so small. And similarly, when we cultivate a right view of God's greatness, we understand our true place. Which leads me to number two, cultivate a right view of yourself. Who are you? You're created in the image and likeness of God. You're sinful. You're flawed. You are very needy on your own, but you are loved. You are loved by your Father. You need to cultivate a biblical and a right view of yourself. Number three is this. Practice honest and transparent relationships with others. That's a pride killer, right? Having to admit that you're sinful, that you're flawed, that you don't have it all together, that you still stumble, right? That's a pride killer. Number four, practice serving and giving. We saw even in this passage today, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So like Jesus, you can follow his example. Where, where is somewhere that, that you can help by serving? Maybe it is something simple like, I don't know, helping out at the church cleanup day next weekend. Maybe it's something more significant. There's somebody that uh, really needs uh, someone uh, to mentor them or love them. or I don't know, whatever it is. I'm not gonna tell you. I'll let the Holy Spirit bring that to your heart and mind. But practice serving and giving. Number five is this. Remember God's definition of success or greatness. Okay? The world defines success and greatness as bigger, more, better, faster. But Jesus' definition of greatness was servant, taking the lower seat. Number six is this, cultivate a thankful and a content heart. You guys, if we, if we even just for 10 seconds tried, we could find something to complain about all, all day long, right? We could find something to complain about. It takes work to cultivate a thankful and a content heart. And then lastly, most importantly, if you don't hear anything else that I've said, the most important thing is this, meditate on the gospel. Remember that God, sent his son Jesus, who in humility took the punishment of the prideful. Let that just continue to blow your mind. Let that continue to stir your heart. Let that continue to cause you to respond in worship to God. This is good news. I don't care how bad the problem of pride is. Our Savior is greater and his gospel is greater. I want to call us to a time of response this evening. We're going to respond as we do in a a, a couple of different ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the the giving of our tithes and offerings. We saw that Jesus gave his best to us. He gave his very life, and so we can respond with giving. If you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like. So I'll I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward and begin to uh, collect the offering now. I would encourage you to give, as the scriptures would say, generously and cheerfully with a heart of thanksgiving. 
While they're collecting the offering, I'll uh, put some discussion questions up on the screen because one of the ways we also want to respond is in community and in conversation. So here's some things to maybe get your conversation started. Number one, why is pride such a major theme in the Bible? Number two, how is pride underneath all the other sins? You can do some, some Bible study, okay? Dig into what the scriptures have to say about pride. Number three, share a little bit more personally. How does your pride affect your view of God or your view of others or even your view of yourself? And, and be specific. Number four, some of you might need to talk about where you're tempted to practice this false humility that we talked about. Next slide. Number five, how is the gospel the ultimate display of humility? Focus on the gospel. Focus on the death of the humble in the place of the prideful. Number six, how can we help one another cultivate a right view of God and of ourselves? And, and I would even say, if I could put a little star next to it, without being hurtful or judgmental, right? Hey, you know, you, uh, you need to have a better view of yourself. You're kind of a dummy, but you think you're smart, right? That's not loving. How can we help one another in love have that right view of God and of ourselves? And number seven, what are some ways that we can practice serving and giving as we war against pride? Really think through it. Am I serving? Am I pouring myself out for, for Jesus, for his church, for others? All of these will be uh, posted up on our Sound City Online community tomorrow. You can find them there. But I hope that these are helpful for you in your discussions this week. We're also going to respond as we do in the celebration of communion, the Lord's table. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, we, we first of all, we practice an open table, which means if you are a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to celebrate with us. If you are not a Christian, I appeal to you, step out of your pride. Humble yourself before the Lord and let him exalt you and lift you up. And then you're welcome to come to the table for the first time as a Christian and celebrate with us. For those of you who are Christians, as you come to the table today and you take the bread and you dip it into the wine or the juice, I want you to remember that this is a moment where you receive grace. This is, in fact, the Lord Jesus himself serving you. Yes, there will be members, leaders up front serving the, the bread and the, the wine to you. But this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself offering of his body and his blood, which was broken for you. Let this be a time where you receive his grace. And lastly, we're going to sing. Pastor Joe and the musicians have some songs for us to sing that really talk about this theme of humility and, and responding to God and his graciousness to us. This first one is a, is a hymn that says, I surrender all, I give it all to you. Whatever I thought I had, I lay it down before you. I'd invite you to sing from a heart of worship and a heart of gratitude. So I'll invite you to stand if you would and I'll pray and then we'll begin our time of response together. Let's stand together. Father, we do, we admit we are so prideful in so many ways. Father, we admit that our pride often puts us at odds with you. Ultimately, fundamentally puts us at odds with you but God, we're so thankful that you sent your son Jesus who in humility laid down his life for us that we might experience forgiveness. I pray right now as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's table, I pray that we would do so with a joyful heart, with a rejoicing heart, knowing that it's not our humility that saves us, it's Jesus' humility that saves us. Let us respond to your grace now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's respond now, church, as soon as you're ready.